Thank you. Please be seated. Wonderful singing, beloved. Well, good morning. The title of this morning's message is Anger and Reconciliation. That is the passage that we find ourselves in as we continue our series through the Sermon on the Mount. Before we get into our time in God's Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to be with us. Will you bow with me, please? Father, we come before you and we thank you. We thank you for Christmas because it is the continual celebration and remembrance of our salvation. Our salvation story being written thousands of years ago when Jesus Christ came. Jesus Christ came down in the form of a man. He lived and on Easter he went to the cross on Good Friday and Easter Sunday you raised him from the dead. And with that, Lord, we have salvation and forgiveness of our sins. We see in your act of righteous anger, Lord, the heart to reconcile us to yourself. Father, I pray that you would convict us this morning, that you would speak to us, that you would both convict our hearts as well as comfort us, that our hearts would be consecrated unto you, and that we would become more like you each and every day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The late, great David Paulison wrote in his book entitled, Good and Angry, quote, in real life, anger is the reaction that incinerates marriages and disintegrates families. It energizes gossip and guns down classmates. It divides churches, turns friendship into enmity, and erupts in road rage. It is the stuff of grievances and bitterness. The fact that some of us overreact in less colorful ways does not mean that those who are quiet are not angry. Anger is the basic DNA of complaining, brooding, irritability, and bickering. Then Paulison concludes his paragraph. He goes on to say, the crucial issues in anger touch every one of us. For those of you who are familiar with David Paulson, you'll understand that he is like the Yoda of the world of biblical counseling. And in his book, Good and Angry, which I commend to you and recommend for your heart and your soul, he shows how each and every one of us struggle with anger in some form. How we express our anger may be different, but nonetheless, the root of anger the problem of anger resides in all of us, which is good news. It's good news because we can see that all of us are guilty of sin, yet all of us need Jesus. All of us needed Christmas. All of us needed Easter. In Paulson's book, he lays out a spectrum of sinful anger. And this morning, I present before you that all of us can probably find ourselves each and every day somewhere on this spectrum. There's moments where all of us are irritable. Whether our irritability is silent, whether we just think it, feel it, or whether we punch it, it is sin. And we're liable for hell, for judgment in hell. Some of us, we struggle with bitterness. This is different from explosive anger. This is a slow anger that seeps within your heart, that eats you up from within. Whereas explosive anger is just momentarily and usually you are angry at yourself afterwards for exploding sometimes because we feel guilty before God others because we feel bad of how we presented ourselves 
before man, bitterness leads to a complaining spirit. You may verbalize it, you may not verbalize it. This morning I want us to see that we're all guilty. Passive anger, self-righteous judgment, argumentation, violence, those speak for themselves. Knowing that many of you will not get around to read Paulson's book, I want you to consider the words of Jesus this morning. Today I want you to see that Jesus is wise in choosing anger as his first example of how all of us fall short of God's law. That even if we can externally obey the Ten Commandments, and even if we can externally obey God's law to some degree, that at the heart level, Jesus' standard is a divine standard that requires holiness from each and every one of his creatures. And so that's what I want you to see today. The context of today's passage is anger directed at another person. Now, when we get to that passage, you're going to see the direct words that if you have ever been angry with your brother. Now, in the original Greek context, that word for brother probably means more than just your biological brother. And we all agree that this is referring to a fellow believer in Jesus Christ. And so some of you might get away reading this passage and say, well, you know, I just have to forgive a fellow Christian. But when it comes to a terrorist, when it comes to a murderer, when it comes to my enemies, when it comes to my neighbor, when it comes to my unbelieving co-worker, I do not have to forgive them or reconcile with them. You know, you haven't read far enough. Because in the, in the end of chapter 5, the very same chapter, this is one sermon where Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount is building a case. A case that indicts all of us as guilty and all of us as needing of his mercy. In Matthew chapter 5, 43, he says, You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor, but I say to you, love your enemies, for then you will be sons of the Father. And so Jesus just keeps raising the standard higher and higher and higher because he wants us to see that though the external law, the Ten Commandments, can be obeyed externally, that really God looks directly into the heart. And so with that, I want you to take God's word if you're not there already, and please turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, where we're going to see our first point. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 21. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 21. As you make your way there, as you turn the pages in your Bible, or as you click on buttons on your phone, Point number one is anger reveals the heart of murder. Anger anger reveals the heart of murder, and the point is as convicting to me and convicting to us as what we read with our eyes. Now, before we read verses 21 and 22, I want to give you the context so that you know what you're reading. Anger reveals the heart of murder. If you remember last week, Pastor Albert preached from the previous passage where it talks about Jesus coming to fulfill the law and the prophets. Now, the law provided for us an external set of rules, a set of rules that tells you thou shalt not murder. And many of the religious leaders and many of of those saints of Israel, as well as the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and you and I, we can get through our entire lives, God willing, never committing murder. In fact, not only is murder a sin before God, but murder is illegal according to the state and will land you in a penitentiary. Or you will be liable to the death penalty, right, depending on which state you're in. 
So we can go through our entire lives without murder, and that was the service that the law offered. And the prophets, though, whom Jesus came to fulfill, the prophets promised and predicted a day where Jesus would come, and he being the Messiah would die for our sins, rise from the dead, and the law would be written on our hearts. You see, there are things that the moral law judges that does not expose the heart. Someone can go through their life, you and I, never committing murder, but exercising judgment upon people wishing that they would be judged or wishing that they would not be alive or wishing that they would be punished or wishing an eye for an eye or the payment or divine wrath would be paid upon them. And in that way, we put ourselves in the seat of God. But in our hypocrisy, we look at the law and realize that we cannot meet the standard. And with that context, I want you to read with your hearts, if you'll follow along with your hearts, verses 21 to 22. And this is what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees and the religious leaders who have the heart of Cain, who will one day, out of their anger and jealousy, have Jesus murdered. Verse 21, Jesus says this, You've heard it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. Jesus referring to number six of the Ten Commandments. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now I want you to see that Jesus is raising the standard higher and higher and higher. And he shows the improbability of keeping the standard of God. I mean, this is interesting that it says, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. This is a reference to Exodus 20, verse 13, and the Ten Commandments, where we know the command that's famous, thou shall not murder. But then the punishment for murder is laid out in also the latter part of the law, Numbers chapter 35, Verse 30, where Moses wrote, If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses. This was, a, this was an early version of what we would have as a civil court, a civil case, right? Where upon witnesses, plural, that a person accused of murder would be, in, would be indicted and they would be put to the death penalty. And that's the Old Testament law. And the Pharisees, they understood this in the narrowest sense, believing that if they have never shed innocent blood, that they, that they have somehow kept the requirements of God. But in verse 22, Jesus chalks up anger towards another person as equivalent to emotional murder. I just want you to see how convicting Jesus' words are. He's saying, if you murder someone, you're liable to judgment and you're liable to the legal system, right? But verse 22, I say to you if, that if anyone is angry with his brother, you'll be liable to judgment. But if you insult a person, you'll be liable to, counsel, to the council. But if you say you fool, you'll be liable to the hellfire. I mean, that seems pretty interesting to me. How many of you have ever called someone stupid? or a fool. I have all the time in my heart or insulting the person in the vehicle that has just moved in front of me, 
Right? I mean, we often refer to things or people as stupid or fool, but we've never killed anyone. And this is interesting because Jesus doesn't say here, at least his verbatim words, he doesn't say if you murder, you'll go to hell. He says if you murder, you'll face the council and judgment. But if you simply insult someone, you go to ex- eternal hell? I mean, we know where Jesus is going. Jesus does not discriminate. Sin is sin. So whether we murder or whether we insult someone, all will eventually go before the divine judge and face hell. That is the words that he uses here, the hell of fire. Well, let's just, let's just exposit this a little bit. Right? We already explained in verse 22 the liable to the council. And what that means is the Supreme Court, in some interpretations, others believe that this was the Sanhedrin of Israel. Others believe that these were local community courts. Either way, there was some legal process that was taken, right? But why is it that when you insult someone out of the heart of anger, why is it that Jesus would consider that emotional murder? It is because anger directed towards another person is a violation against God. Why? Because humans were created in God's image, and we only have one creator. We are all equal as creatures before God. And when we exercise anger, anger is a form of judgment. Anger is a form of judgment. There is righteous anger, which we will get to. But righteous anger always seeks to reconcile. Sinful anger always seeks to judgment. It always seeks judgment. When you're angry at someone, if you're emotionally angry... And you don't say anything, you're just saying, I have the right to be angry at this person because they deserve my anger. They deserve my feelings of wrath and my feelings of condemnation. If you want to verbally insult them, then they deserve me calling them a fool. The word fool is raka. Some of your translations say that. And this word fool in its Old Testament and its New Testament understanding, it's not just saying that someone is foolish in their thinking or that they don't they lack knowledge or wisdom or discernment it's actually making a moral judgment on them because the word fool in the old testament and the new testament context says this person is not only stupid they are immoral they are sinful it makes a judgment call on a person so no matter how you want to express your anger through tone irritability judgment violence you are saying that I am God. That's what you're saying. You're saying, I am God, and I have the right to judge another creature as if I am divine. Now, we don't always think that, but that's why anger is a violation of idolatry. Anger basically puts ourselves in the seat of God and denounces another person. Now, let me be clear. Let me be clear before some of you pull out your phones and begin to write me an email right now. Am I saying that we should not have good judgment? No, I'm not saying that. Good judgment is different from being judgmentally angry. One seeks to discern and discipline our thoughts and our minds. The other seeks to denounce and destroy with our emotions. And one of them will lead to discipleship unto Christ. The other, sinful anger, leads to a destruction where it's a self-internal destruction of our souls. Now, I want to say something about this word hell because the word hell is not popular among evangelicals today, and that is a tragedy. The word hell is used here. It it, it directly gives a description liable to the hell of fire. These are the words of Jesus. 
But some background and understanding helps us to realize why the word hell is used in the Bible. This word is Gehenna. For some of you who are interested in the original languages, the word used for hell is Gehenna, and it's derived from the word Hinnom, which was the name of a valley southwest of Jerusalem. It was a place that in the time of Jesus, when you thought of Gehenna, you thought of a place of serious abomination to the Lord and judgment. The valley of Hinnom was where King Ahaz, the evil King Ahaz, worshipped a foreign idol. And the way that he did this was by sacrificing his own sons. And so, following after Ahaz, child sacrifice unto idols took place in Hinnom. And we see this in 2 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 3. And it speaks of King Ahaz, and he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burned his sons as an offering according to the abomination of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And then in Jeremiah 19, verses 2 to 9, which is a long passage, God sends his prophet Jeremiah to condemn this valley of Hinnom where these horrendous acts of evil happened. And so in every sense, the word hell, Gehenna, refers to a cursed place of divine judgment. And it's scary that Jesus declares not just if you've committed murder, but if you've simply called someone stupid or a fool, that you will end up in this place. And obviously, he's pointing towards an eternal judgment, which we have no idea what that will be like. But the imagery of a place where there's endless burning and condemnation, a place where the Lord condemns as an abomination to himself, is sad as well as scary. Now years later, by the 12th century AD, the imagery of a trash dump would be ingrained into not only readers of the Gospel of Matthew, but all who would think of Gehenna. Later on, much longer, you know, much later, after Jesus' time, uh, or after, after this time that Jesus taught, the 12th century AD, this place, Gehenna, would turn into a, a trash dump where garbage would be continually burned so you would just smell the aroma this nasty aroma of garbage being burned and fire and smoke covering that place and that would be a representation of what is abominable to abominable to the lord and where people's souls would eternally burn because they've simply called someone stupid or a fool i mean that is convicting but there is hope there's hope. A lot of you know my story. That in my teenage years, anger was my best friend. Anger was the way I dealt with family pain. Anger was the way I judged people. Anger was how I responded when I was fouled hard on the basketball courts. Anger was how I responded with my words. Anger was how I sought to listen to my music that I liked to listen to and it would resonate and justify my anger. Anger was how I responded when I was hurt with people. Anger was my friend. When Jesus saved me, I knew that it was a sin to blow up in anger. And I was able to, during Bible college, control my anger except for one place, the basketball courts. 
Because we're competitive spirits and the love of knowing that I'm better than my fellow man in getting a round ball into the basket, right, caused me to defend what I wanted to defend, which was my reputation. And the entire time I was concerned, every time I got angry, I said, wow, I'm not being a good Christian. And as I grew more and more, I realized it's not so much that I really cared about how God saw me, but I cared about how my fellow man saw me. And so anger gets deeper and deeper, and the entire time, as I learned, okay, I just have to not blow up, I failed to realize that it's not so much about blowing up, because, because then people said, hey, you're such a nice guy, you hardly blow up now, but I would be really good at being angry at people in my heart. And as you can see how anger, anger, you can deny anger, even in times where I would say, I'm not going to let this person get to me. I'm not going to let this person get to me. I'm not going to let them get under my skin. What am I really saying? And I want to say, and a lot of you, I hear you guys saying this, I'm not really angry. I'm not really angry. You know what you're really saying? You're saying, no, 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 no. That person doesn't deserve my anger because I'm better than them. That's a statement of judgment. That's a statement of judgment. I'm not going to let this person get to me. You're still irritated by them. You're still angry. Let's just be honest. All right, so anger is, is a self-destructive emotion. But I found hope as I realized the problem with my heart was not so much anger, but it was a problem of love. It was a problem that I loved myself. I loved my reputation. And I loved the things that I love more than God. It was St. Augustine who said the essence of sin is disordered love. In other words, Augustine is saying the greatest problem that we have to reckon with is a problem of disordered loves, plural. What do we love in this world? Who do we love in this world? And when what or who we love comes under threats, and this includes ourselves, this includes our idols, this includes good things, Whenever we love anyone or anything more than God, our love is out of order. You see, but when we are reminded that the people we love, the things we love, they can be threatened, they can be taken away from us, but God cannot be taken from us. When we remember that nothing can separate us from the love of God and God himself, then our love is reordered and redemption is possible. Anger, as Tim Keller would say, is love in motion when someone or something you love is under threat. So you think of that which you love, that, that whom you love, or, the, or yourself whom you love, or things that you value. When you see these things coming under threat, your emotions begin to be defensive. You begin to make a judgment call in your heart, and anger is basically love in motion. When someone or something you love is under threat, anger is disordered love. I'll give you an example. Probably more of a confession. Many of us get angry with traffic. Why? You know, you, so, you, you, you live in L.A. You know there's going to be traffic, right? I mean, you could easily just move to Oklahoma. <laughs> there is industry there. There's oil industry, Boeing is there. There are jobs. But you want California. 
I want California. So at the end of the day, why? Okay, so some of us may be frustrated when we get in traffic and we start getting angry. Who are you really angry? Are you really angry at the people? So, so you start to think things, oh man, there's too many people here. As if I would want less people here to reach or less people to come to church, right? There's too many people here. There's no, park, there's no parking spaces in church. <laughs> Why are there so many people coming to church? You sit in the gas line at Costco. Man, what is going on here? Why is everybody getting gas at Costco? Why are you getting gas at Costco? <laughs> because it's affordable. And you start thinking all these things. Oh, man, population, too many people, too many people with a membership. Man, and you start getting mad. If the government would only use our taxpayers' money more wisely and stop making, you know, these, these carpool lanes where you have to pay for them, because they don't help and start expanding the freeway. And then at the end of the day, you realize, man, I really don't love people. And you look in the mirror, you're like, I am people. <laughs> See what I mean? At the end of the day, what am I saying? I value my time. I value my convenience. I value my wallet. And all these things are just making me irritable. Instead, sometimes, we don't want to admit that we're wrong. You're racing through the freeway, angry at traffic because you're going to be late to a meeting. And instead of going into that meeting and saying, you know what, I kind of left later than I should have. I woke up later, I took too long, or just being honest, you're irritable. And you say, man, dude, I hate traffic. I can't stand people. That's what we're really saying. Beloved, I think I just made a confession before you of my own sin. You see, it's a problem of love. Who do we love? Why do we love? At the end of the day, anger reveals that we love ourselves more than anyone else in this world. We love the people whom we love. Now, I know there is righteous anger. But because we're sinful by nature, sometimes righteous anger and how we respond is not the way of God. Righteous anger is to be angry about the things that God is angry about. And to be bothered by the things that bothers God. You see, God will judge people for not being angry. Did you know that? That he's upset with the Pharisees and the religious leaders because their hearts are apathetic, which is worse than anger. Their hearts do not break and they do not become angry when they see social injustice or injustice or, or women being oppressed. And, and you'll see more of this. I'm going to show you next week of how the Jewish men used the certificate of adultery, or later, a couple weeks from now, the, the certificate of divorce, an oppressed woman. There are injustices in this world. There were sick people not being tended to, and their hearts were not angry by that. Instead, they were angry at the Gentiles. They were angry at things and people that Jesus wanted them to reach. So there, yes, there is righteous anger, but I put before you today that oftentimes our righteous anger does not seek to reconcile. But God's righteous anger always seeks to reconcile, and that leads us to point number two this morning. Point number two is reconciliation reflects the heart of God. In our passage, before we read it, 
Jesus uses two illustrations to emphasize the urgency of reconciliation. The first puts you before the communion table in a church service, and the second one takes you into a courtroom. In both instances, the believer is coming before a judge. The first one, you're coming before the divine judge because the communion table takes you into the, into the worship room. You're essentially entering into the throne room of God, coming before the divine judge, saying, Lord, I want to take communion as a remembrance of my forgiveness and asking for your forgiveness, confessing any unconfessed sin, and telling you, one, all my relationships are reconciled. I want you to understand what happens in communion. What you are saying in communion is a statement. When you take the bread, it's not a cracker, it's unleavened bread, and when you take the juice or drink the red wine, what you are saying before God is all of my relationships to the best of my ability are reconciled. My relationship with you is reconciled, thus, case in point, the bread and cup symbolize this. But also, I've taken every effort to reconcile with my brother or sister and whether they've received that or not, whether they've reciprocated or not, I stand before you with a clear conscience and take this bread. That's what's happening in communion. Now, the second illustration, you're coming before a human judge. A human judge declares, you know, who's right or who's wrong. And in both instances, Jesus is saying it is wise. It is ultimately wise and good for your soul if you take, make every effort to reconcile all of your relations before coming before the judge. And with that, let's read with understanding. Let's look at the first example, verses 23 to 24. Jesus says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar, there and there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now, this is drawing on the historical illustration of Cain and Abel. Did you know that, yes, the first sin was Adam and Eve, but the first crime after Genesis 3 recorded in our Bibles was homicide? Did you know that? And it was Cain and Abel, the brothers, both of them, brought offering of worship before the Lord. Abel brought the first fruits of his, the first fruits of his work. And God knew that he was giving, that Abel was offering to God the best of what he had. And God saw Abel's heart. And God accepted Abel's offering. God looked at Cain and Cain, Cain also gave offering, but he gave just some of what he had. It wasn't the best of his crop. And God wasn't so concerned about the product or what was offered. He looked at the heart. And he knew that Cain was able to offer what his brother offered. And God didn't condemn Cain. God just said, look, you know, Cain, you can do better than that. But Cain became angry. He was jealous, and what did he do? Just like the Pharisees would do unto Jesus, out of jealousy and out of anger, he murdered his brother. And the blood of Abel cried out, cried out for the innocent because murder had happened. 
And, and one person made in the image of God, his life was taken. You see this, that Jesus here is speaking forward. He's thinking about the context of Matthew. He's thinking about the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, what they would eventually do to Jesus. But he's also looking at our hearts and he's, he's showing us that he's, just, he's not just flippantly going to the extreme of bringing about murder and anger and saying, hey, if you're, if you're angry, you're a murderer. He knows that, that every human being gets angry, but not every human being is a murderer. But he's also showing us that the seed of a murderer goes back to Genesis chapter 4. And it goes back to the heart of anger. And so he's saying, if all possible, before you bring your offering, look at your heart and make sure that you're not angry, that you're not angry. He doesn't say you will not become angry, right? Nowhere does Jesus say that. He doesn't say you're not allowed to become angry. He's speaking at our everyday emotion that we will become angry. But he's saying, go and reconcile your anger first. Later, we'll, we'll talk about how we do this through Christ, first and foremost. Now, the second illustration that we gave context for, verse 25 and 26, I want you to see this with your eyes and with your heart. Jesus says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. Now, there's something very interesting here. The New American Standard Bible does a great job in translating the words come to terms quickly with. Anybody have the New American Standard this morning? Anybody have that translation? What does it say? You can yell it out. What does it say? Yell it out louder. I'll tell you. It says something along the lines of, it says something along the lines of make friends with. I believe at least that's what I, I saw. Okay? Come to terms quickly. Most of us use the ESV, and I know that I see that, the Lex Standard version in this room. But the New American Standard and other translations give Greek interpretation, and that's stronger than what you see here. Come to terms quickly is the legal terms. Meaning, settle your account with your accuser as you're traveling on your way to the courtroom. Because if you do so, it's wise. Because maybe you can reconcile before coming before a judge, and maybe whoever is accusing you will drop their charges or their case or their lawsuit. But to befriend is Jesus' standard. Could you imagine that? You know, you and I can have legal trouble. We can go to court and you can settle but still hate the person and never be friends. Jesus takes the standard one up and he says, be friends. Make friends with your enemy. If you'll allow me the liberty to take this parabolically and to show you some parabolic theology this morning. Is this not what God did for us? You look at our lives. All of us were on our way before, in life, we're headed to stand before an eternal judge. Think about that. All of us are guilty of sin. All of us are guilty of divine judgment. All of us are guilty of violating the divine law and, and susceptible to divine judgment. 
And so as we're going along in life, some of us are aware of it, some of us are not aware of it. Some of us are aware of our state before God along the way. And if we die and go before our judge and we haven't reconciled with God, then we will face hell. But is this not what God did? He sent his only begotten son to say, hey, as you're going along in life while you're still alive, I want to befriend you. I want to befriend you and offer you reconciliation, Jesus says, through a relationship with him, through his atonement, before you ever go before the judge. And if you make friends with Jesus, or let alone he makes friends with you and you receive his offer of reconciliation, when you go before the Father in heaven, the divine judge, you have not only a friend, you have the greatest attorney ever. You have the Son of God standing before you and before the judge, arguing for you, and the Father looking upon his Son and hearing his plea for you and seeing that your heart is covered by his blood, he will declare you righteous and forgiven and welcome you into the eternal, eternal bliss of heaven and life in the family of God. I mean, is this not what Jesus did for us, is that he befriended us first? I want to say something about the final words of verse 26. It says that, I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. So you see here in verse 25 that you go before your accuser, and what happens typically in the court cases is the judge will say you're guilty. They'll hand you over to the guard. The guard being some type of Roman soldier back then will take you and put you into prison. And the last penny, the Greek word there, it, it's talking about a Roman coin. It's 1 64th of a denarius. And the imagery here is of squeezing out your last drop. That's the imagery here. Is that, is that if you don't reconcile, and if you go before the judge, and if the judge goes after you, this is figurative, that yeah, it may squeeze out every last dime and all your attorney fees and all the fees that you pay and all the fines. But when you think of what unreconciled relationships do to your soul, it squeezes out all of your peace, all of your joy, and your very last drop of emotional energy. And that's why we must remember this morning that sinful judgment, sinful anger always leads to judgment. First, it leads towards judgment of others. Later, it will lead us to judgment before God, that we will face judgment. But righteous anger, if there is one in your heart, will always seek reconciliation. Here's the application today. We'll get to the big idea later. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27. The Apostle Paul writes, Be angry and do not sin. And I say, Paul, is that even humanly possible? How can we be angry and do not sin? And he says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Notice that he's saying, you will be angry, but you need to deal with it. You need to reconcile your relationships as soon as possible before the sun goes down, if possible. You must reconcile in your heart with God, if possible, and give no opportunity for the devil to take the temptation of anger and turn that into sin. And that sin then eats you up from alive. How is it possible to be angry and not sin? Well, beloved, the example is in Christ. Christ was angry with sin. It broke his heart when he saw evil and injustice. Yet, 
His anger was never motivated by evil, but filled with love. And what he did instead of just condemning was he went to the cross so that those who who condemn would would have their hearts changed and we would be consecrated and forgiven. See, Jesus, he looks at something he's angry at. He looks at the people that he's angry with. And he says, I am angry with them. He's honest. I am angry with their sin and I am angry with them for being sinners. But I will not allow my anger to remain judgment. I will offer reconciliation. And it's only when Jesus' offer of reconciliation is rejected by the atheist or the average unbeliever, saying, no, thank you, Jesus, I'll take this on my own account. Then, only then, will judgment come in eternity. You see the heart of God. God exemplifies for us what it means to be angry and not sin. But before we engage reconciliation with others, I believe we must engage our own hearts. There's another book that I commend to you this morning. It's a book written by by J. Alastair Groves and Winston T. Smith, two biblical counselors. And the title of that book is called Untangling Emotions. This is a 2019 publication from Crossway. I commend it to you. And in, in the application portion, the back end of this book... Groves and Smith give examples of how to engage our emotions, and one of the emotions is anger. And they give three practical steps of identifying anger, examining anger, and evaluating our anger. And I want to lay these before you this morning. Identifying anger is simply admitting that you and I are angry, saying, God, I'm actually angry, and confessing it to God, not making excuses, God, I'm just irritable, but I'm not angry yet or I haven't blown up yet, or I haven't said anything yet. It's easy to convince ourselves that we aren't angry when we actually are. I I gave you the example earlier of self-righteous judgment where we say, hey, I'm not going to let that person get to me, but they've already gotten to you. So when you say, I'm not going to get angry, that person's not worth my emotional energy, you're basically saying a form of self-righteous judgment. That's one example. But some of us uh, may struggle with a complaining spirit. Others of us may be passive aggression, which is lurking in our tone and saying, I'm not angry yet. I'm not angry yet. I'm not angry yet. We might not even say that, right? But we might just give some type of of coldness in in our body language towards others. It may be a look. It may be how, how, how we just want to ignore people, right? The heart is deceitful, and sin puts on the blinders, and it blinds us from seeing our motives and our intentions. And so we must identify anger by confessing that we are angry people. Some of you saying, I don't have an angry person. I, I'm not an angry person. My wife is or my husband is. Well, you know, I think that's just, that, that reveals the problem in and of itself right there. You know, and you have to ask, well, are you contributing to their anger? The second is examining anger. This is asking God to search your heart. You want to answer this question. I am angry because, fill in the blank. Okay, so examining your anger is different from identifying your anger. Identifying your anger is, God, I confess I am angry. But examining your angry, a- anger is, God, I am angry because. You know, sometimes you're just angry at people. You don't even know why. Like if I asked you, are you really angry at your spouse? Why are you irritable? Are you really angry at your kids? You really that angry at your kids? No, you're really angry at someone at work or some project. Why are you taking it out on your loved ones? You're really stressed out about something else. Why are you taking it out on the people who let you take it out on them? 
You know, sometimes we need to sit back and say, why am I angry? Am I really that unloving? And I gave you illustrations before where sometimes we want to blame our circumstances, but really we're angry because we love ourselves, we love our comfort, we love our convenience. And when those things come into threat, we love our health, we love um, the people in our lives. And when those people come into threats, we become angry. Ask yourself the question, what angers you the most? And the answer to that question, ask yourself, what angers you the most? And often the answer to that question will reveal who or what you truly love in life. So the answer will either reveal your love for God and the things of God, or it will reveal your willingness to, your willingness to put other things and order other things before God. I'll give you one example that applies to church life. You get a text, or maybe I'll get, more, I'll get more relevant with you guys. You get some Facebook message. Sometimes I don't check those things because, you know, I don't have to open up Facebook. Uh, but, but you get a text or you get Facebook Messenger on your app, and you were planning to relax for the weekend, but it's a church member asking you for help. What starts racing through your mind? Man, you know, I'm already tired. I've already done enough. I've got so much to do. This church member is asking me for some help. I should help them because it's the right thing to do. But I'm a little bothered because this is interrupting my schedule. But ask yourself, why am I becoming irritated? Is it really because I'm tired? What would God want? What if Jesus was on his way to the cross and said, I don't want to finish this work <laughs> because that's Hanley's problem. That's FCBC1. That, that's their problem. That's their sin. It's not my sin. You know, I, I did my part. I, I, I gave the Sermon on the Mount. I fought with the Pharisees. I'm done. You know, I said my piece. Whether they take it or leave it, Father, I'm coming home. Holy Spirit, come down now. Send the angels. I'm going home. I, I'm not going to finish this. I'm not going to the cross. Why would I die for them? You see, on the cross, our problems became Jesus' problems. Our emotional pain, all of our consequences, all of our sin, the wrath of God, all of it, Jesus absorbed it. He took it all. And that his righteousness, his reward, his grace, his mercy, perfection, eternity in heaven, everything that belonged to him, the glory of coming before God, all of it was then given to us. What, what, what he had, his resources became ours. Our resources or our lack of, he bore. We see in the gospel what it means. What it means then to really examine why are we angry and are we being Christ-like. Then that leads to evaluating our anger. And in evaluating anger, this is the part where you've admitted that you're angry. You've taken some time to pause and think, why am I angry? But you're still a little bit upset. The sanctifying part is coming before God and asking him, Lord, now it's time to apply the gospel. I want you to, to see and hear the words of Groves and Smith, which give us some cutting insight. They say, quote, you are in the greatest danger when you are right. Because being right about someone else's sin so easily blinds you to your own, end quote. I want you to consider that. 
that there are times where you take the time to identify that you're angry, you take the, the time to, to examine your anger, and then you evaluate that I have the right to be angry because this person is sinful. Now, how you respond often, you need to be careful because it's when we're right, that's when it's the most dangerous. When we're wrong, it's easier to say, God, you know, I shouldn't have been angry. I shouldn't have been angry. I have no right to be angry. I'm being sinful right now. But when we're actually right, that's when we start making all these excuses. Well, God, here's why. God, don't you agree with me? Those people are sinful, but so are you, and I died for you, Jesus says. So that's when we got to think, how do you deal with the racing emotions and racing thoughts? One pastor, Zach Eswine, he says, quote, we need to wait out our racing thoughts and emotions until we choose good, even for an enemy. And once again, Jesus commands us, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. That we have to process our emotions and we need to engage our emotions. You don't want to ignore your emotions. You don't want to overreact to your emotions and blow up. You need to engage your emotions. That means we need time to pause and reflect. But as we reflect, we need to consider the gospel. The gospel displays both God's anger and his love. I want you, beloved, if you didn't hear anything else this morning, to hear this, that the greatest expression of God's anger and wrath was aimed at his son. I want you to see the perfect example of righteous anger. In the cross of Jesus Christ, we see the perfect manifestation and expression of righteous anger being poured out so that you and I could be reconciled to God. Remember what I said. Sinful anger always seeks judgment and leads to judgment. But righteous anger always seeks reconciliation. This is why none of us refer to the cross as God murdering his son. Did you get that? That when God sent his son to be crucified upon the cross, none of us would call that murder. Instead, we refer to the cross as the greatest act of sacrificial love because the aim of Jesus's, of God's righteous anger is reconciliation through Jesus Christ. When the goal and the aim of our righteous anger is reconciliation and when we go and sacrifice ourselves in order to reconcile, that's what we call righteous anger. So that's what I mean. A lot of you sit here today, well, I'm righteously angry. You're not. You're sinfully angry. Unless you seek to reconcile with the institutions, the people, or whoever or whatever you're angry with, including yourself. Sometimes we just need to reconcile ourselves before God in the gospel. The cross of Christ not only reconciles us as creatures to our creator, but the gospel through the cross enables us as God's creatures to reconcile with one another. So the big idea this morning is that sinful anger leads to judgment, but righteous anger seeks, to, seeks reconciliation in and through Christ. Let me say that again. Sinful anger leads to judgment, but righteous anger seeks reconciliation in and through Christ. And that's what we learn from Jesus. I'm going to end with one final illustration that I've adapted from Tim Keller. The only action that transforms the heart 
of anger is in action that models Christ. And so I want you to envision this illustration that someone is angry at you and they shouldn't be. They're being unreasonable. They're lashing out. The temptation is what to withdraw or to pay back. So I want to give you a few scenarios. Imagine that you're a parent and your child could be three, could be a teenager. They're cursing at you. If they're a toddler, they're throwing a tantrum. And they're unreasonably showing you their disordered love. Their rage. They're just raging at you. I want you to consider another illustration, another picture. Your boss, unregenerate. Well, worse yet, let's say he's a Christian. And he's just letting you have it unreasonably in front of other people. Just pouring it into you. It goes from just stating a lack of performance, which you think you've done your best. But now he's personally insulting your intelligence. I want you to take another illustration. Your spouse is just letting you have it unreasonably, unreasonable, just lashing out at you, now making personal statements, now bringing up things that she said or he said they'd forgiven you of from 10 years ago that you forgot something on the honeymoon, okay? Unreasonable, just lashing out. In that moment, what is our temptation as human beings? Keller says that number one temptation is to withdraw, not going to engage. I'm going to withdraw because I don't want to take this. If you're a fighter like me, the temptation is to pay back, is to get even and say, no, I'm going to defend myself and I'm going to fight. I'm going to stand up and I'm going to fight. I think Jesus did neither. Neither. Imagine if Jesus did that to us. What happened on the cross was that all of our rage, all of our sin was being directed at, God, at the innocent Son of God. And then the unfair, divine wrath of the Father, which Jesus didn't deserve, was being directed at God, and once, at His Son, at Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus could have withdrew and said, God, I'm done. Or Jesus could have paid back and said, I'm going to send everybody to hell. But instead, what he does is he, he draws near to you and I, and he absorbs our wrath. So if you're that parent, the only way you're going to get your kids to have their hearts transformed by the gospel, is the model of the gospel, is not to pay back and start yelling at your kid as if you're three, or you're cursing at your teenager as if you're 16, but to draw near and to absorb their wrath and to stand upon the truth and to calmly tell them, you know what, I don't think this is right, but I'm just going to take it. The only way that your spouse's heart is going to change is not if you withdraw or pay back, but if you draw near knowing that you don't deserve this, maybe, and absorb their verbal abuse. And you can take this into the social realm, but at work, the only way your boss would ever see an example of Jesus Christ crucified unfairly, unjustly for the transformation of the heart and reconciliation is if you just absorbed it. And all of the people watching see, wow, he or she's not fighting back, even though they're personally being insulted. Beloved, that's what Jesus did for us. He drew near to us. He absorbed our wrath. He absorbed God's wrath. And he did that in order to reconcile us to himself because he knew that the problem of anger was not an anger problem, it was a love problem. And if it's a love problem, and if we need to redeem and reorder the love, then the only way to change what we love or who we love is to change our hearts. And the only way he would change our hearts is through sacrificial love. Draw near, absorb, 
stand upon the cross of Christ and seek reconciliation. Sinful anger leads to judgment, but righteous anger always seeks reconciliation in and through Christ. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word and we come before you asking that you would heal us of all forms of anger, all expressions of anger. That you would help us this morning not to feel condemned, but our hearts would move, Lord, as consecrated unto confession that we would be drawn to Christ. Lord, I pray that you would save us, Lord Jesus. I pray, Lord, that we would be first reconciled unto you and help us even when it's difficult to seek reconciliation with others. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.